circular economy is based on the principles of designing out waste and pollution, keeping products and materials in use, and regenerating natural systems. Where sustainability is good at defining the problem, around the world, people are looking to circular economy models to provide the solutions we need. But how can we move from circular theory to practice in the context of our cities? Hi, and welcome to episode four of Moonshot City. I'm Preeti Ambani, and I'm here with Juhi Sharif, and together we're exploring the big questions around what makes a resilient and regenerative city. Today, we're delighted to welcome our third guest, Debbie O'Byrne. Debbie is a circular economy practitioner and thought leader, with circular economy having been the focus of her MBA master's thesis. Since then, she's worked with a range of government organizations, Crown Research Institutes, IWI, that's Māori tribes, and large corporates in New Zealand to integrate circular economy principles into the redesign of their business strategies. Currently, Debbie is a circular economy lead at Lake Macquarie Council in Australia. She's working on projects relating to policy, material flows, and post-coal economic development. Kia ora, Debbie. Kia ora. Tell us about how you first came to the circular economy and how your understanding of the circular economy in our cities has evolved. And thank you for having me here today. My journey is an interesting one. Uh, I've always been interested in sustainability. And when I considered, you know, what more could I do to, to step into this space and do work that was really deeply meaningful to me? You know, lots of people ask me, why did I not do an environmental science degree? And I mean, I did consider that, but to me, environmental scientists have been telling us for decades that we need to change the way we live, the way we organize our economies and our systems. And we didn't seem to be shifting the dial. So my understanding came to the point where it was, this is not an environmental problem. This is a business problem and a human behavior problem. I saw more value in understanding it from that perspective. So the MBA made a lot of sense to me. So I was probably the the only greenie, well, one of the few greenies in my MBA class, but looking at system change and how could I learn to understand the business problems and the pain points for business to transition. And so that's where I came upon this model of the circular economy, because to me, it was a systemic problem, not just a individual business or organization problem that triggered my interest in the circular economy. So I, I focused on that as the special subject for my master's thesis. Debbie, can you tell us a bit more about how your understanding of the circular economy and cities has evolved? Yeah, the cities piece is really interesting. I mean, a lot of the work I've been doing up to this point has been a little bit playing in the built environment space and how that affects what kind of materials we might use when we rebuild cities, looking at what was happening overseas where they're much further advanced in that circular economy space, particularly in Europe. So looking at that, and trying to create some tangible action plans and strategies around what a transition to a circular city might look like. So obviously, there's been a lot of work done by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. So part of my role is to make a map for the city of Lake Macquarie as to how we're going to transition to a circular economy. So the way my thinking has evolved and changed is trying to get it, like you articulated earlier, out of that theoretical space into what are the practical tools that cities can actually use. Can you talk to us more about the Ellen MacArthur Foundation framework? So the Ellen MacArthur has a really good framework where they look at it across city systems. 
So you've got the built environment, the energy system, the transport system, the urban bioeconomy and production systems and how they all interact with each other. And then within those systems, how can you organize a way forward where they can go possibly at different speeds? And from within a council, they don't necessarily own that city system completely itself. They have a lot to do with the built environment. They obviously have energy systems that they're a part of, but they wouldn't necessarily own that system for the city itself. So it's trying to identify where cities can play, where they can affect real change. And there's a need, as there often is, with lots of these complex problems to do things in parallel or to do things at different speeds. So you have to, I guess, identify where the low-hanging fruit is that you can address immediately. And then how do you build that into the planning framework? Because cities are not built overnight. They're built over long periods of time. And that takes planning and organizing. And so when you're trying to to be a thought leader in what a circular city might look like, you have to do two things. You have to balance the city that it exists currently and the way it has evolved over time, and then the city you might want to plan for the future. So the new developments, how could you learn the lessons from the challenges that your current city environment creates and address some of those in new development? How easy is that to do in practice? That can be difficult, but I think we can definitely don't need to start from scratch. We can see what's happening overseas. So you look at the pieces of work that have been done. I think it's Denmark, the building as material bank framework. So that's kind of coming from a place where we already have lots of existing buildings that we're using components of them, particularly wood, windows, doors, that kind of thing that we're familiar with. But what about all the other components of a building? that we don't necessarily know all the information about them because they were made 40, 50, 60 years ago. And so recognizing that that now presents a problem for reuse of those materials. They've got a pilot program in Denmark, I believe, called the BAM framework, and that's treating new buildings as material banks for future buildings. So that means you want to gather information about what materials you're using now and what components and functionality materials they might be composed of how they're assembled and potentially disassembled. So that's creating what are called materials or circular passports. We've been hearing more and more about product and material passports, some of which, of course, use blockchain technology. Many of the applications I've seen relate to tracking chain of custody of products to understand their provenance and also what happens to them at end of life. For example, here in New Zealand, The battery industry group, which I chair, is interested in the use of digital passports to track large batteries over their life cycles to ensure that they're properly collected and managed at end of life. Can you tell us about the application of passports to the built environment? Yeah, like it says, it's a passport that that articulates 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now how it might be possible to reuse the components of that building. We don't know what those buildings might look like. And I think one of the lessons we've learned is that often the functionality or the purpose of a building wears out before the material components of it. So the way we change the way we work, activity-based workplaces, you know, the ability for teams to flex. So the work environment and the way we organize working teams change. This is just an example from like a commercial sector might change but actually there's nothing wrong with the fabric of the building but we often just tear it apart to put it back in a a new way that's functioning so those material passports and that design for disassembly 
are designed for flexibility, allows buildings to flex and move and be made in a modular way, which is quite different to how we've done it up to this point. So I guess those are some of the key things that are happening internationally that we can learn from and how can we apply them to the cities that we're working in now. Debbie, those were really interesting insights, particularly around the built environment. You also mentioned the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and their research that highlights interrelating building, mobility and product systems in a city can pave the way for building cities that are circular in nature and by relation more productive. So a question to you, Debbie, is what would be the fundamental or the key parts of a holistic circular economy? Where could cities start formulating a circular economy strategy? A good place to start is the energy system, because one of the fundamental principles of a circular economy is that it's built on renewable energy. So cities might do different things. They might be known for different things like manufacturing, or you might have a city based around a food environment, but every city has an energy system. And one of the key roles and the key targets we want to achieve is to decarbonize our cities it makes sense to look at where the largest sources of carbon are, and that's often in the energy system. So how is a city fueled currently? And what might a roadmap look like to decarbonize a city? And it's not always the easiest one, but you're starting to see the appearance of distributed networks, microgrids. How can the energy system be more distributive, less impacted by shocks? I mean, look at what's happening with the oil prices now, you know, storms, weather events, Climate change is creating those exogenous shocks that affect energy systems. We've seen major problems in the United States, particularly in California. So I think an energy system is a common challenge and it's a good place to start because, I mean, what is the purpose of what we're trying to achieve here? Why is going circular important? It's not in and of itself the goal. The goal is to create better environmental outcomes, better social outcomes. So the end goal should be supported by the work we're doing. We urgently need to decarbonize our energy system, so it's a good place to start. One of the good things about the Ellen MacArthur framework is it does grapple with the idea that these are systems. It's not just a thing, and that's often a challenging place to be, and you need a lot of collaboration across the system. But are councils and businesses equipped to respond to systemic challenges? Often the mechanisms or the forums to solve these complex problems aren't necessarily the way we're used to doing things. Like often councils will work in their in their bubble, if you like, uh, using our term that's very uh, topical at the moment. And a, an organisation might work in its sphere of influence. And then sometimes you've got NGOs, but actually we need to create and weave new forums and platforms and enabling mechanisms to enable that system change. And that needs a lot of collaboration. And that can be challenging in the sense that it's not easy to get funding for that because there's lots of buckets of funding for waste minimization or a corporate might have a fund for their corporate social responsibility. And they're all sitting in silos. But when you're looking at system change, you need to find ways and mechanisms to enable collaboration across the system. And that's not something that we're necessarily, um, it's not that we're not good at it. It's just not as well understood or as well We're not as practiced at it as we could be when you're looking at system change. Debbie, you've talked about the challenges around funding mechanisms, and you've also highlighted another challenge, which is when you've got 
assets that outlive the life of a building or certainly might outlive the life of a company, which is a real challenge when we're starting to get our heads around how we plan for things in the long term. Can you talk a bit more about other barriers that we face? So from the perspective of city governments and councils, but also for businesses. Some of the common barriers are a little bit like what I talked about, is that the circular economy work tends to happen at the boundaries, whether that's the boundaries between departments inside a you know an organization where you need to collaborate across the system to pitch in budget to get an outcome that may not necessarily be directly attributable to your department, but it's good for the system overall or the boundary work between sectors, or the boundary work between organizations who are in the NGO space and the the government space. So that can be challenging. Who takes responsibility? How do we implement decisions that are made at the boundaries and go back then to our organizations where we might have come from and then affect that change? And I guess some of the challenges are just related to the kind of problems that cities present so there's, there's some good work done by, I think it was uh, Dr. Warren Weaver around types of problems. So you've got problems of simplicity, which is kind of like two variables and their relationship to each other. And then you've got problems of disorganized complexity where there's billions of variables. And that's kind of where you've got like an insurance company that how would they organize their finances or assess their finances. And that's like using statistics to find how you might frame up that problem. But a third type of problem is the problems of organized complexity. And that's where there's probably about 10 to 20 different factors, but they're interrelated with each other. And when you change one element or one factor, it has an influence on the others. And then that has another influence. So that domino effect. And cities are problems of organized complexity. So it's tricky to grasp how that might need to be untangled. And we don't necessarily have the methods of analyzing how that might work. Earlier, you spoke about the energy system being an obvious place to start, given the need for cities to decarbonize. But if cities are problems of organized complexity, what approach do we need to take to meet that challenge? So one of the ways to do that is to pick a problem, say a problem of waste in a city, and then take that and understand how it influences or is affected by other ways or other material flows in the city, like say water or transport or the way a city is organized so that you can easily pick up waste. And that goes to some of the conversations we're having around urban densification. You know, the denser a city, the easier it is to kind of take some of those massive amounts of trucks and cars off the roads. So people don't have to travel such far distances to get to where they need to be. And then you've also got that thinking of, that's great, I love the idea of intensifying cities, but I still want to have my quarter out of block and so people are happy for other people to be in areas that are identified, but not necessarily want to have that happen to their own neighborhoods. So it creates a problem that needs collective solutions. And often articulating what the problem is, is part of the solution. So I think there's a need to create opportunities to collaborate and to get citizen involvement. And that's why you're seeing things like citizen labs, circular economy labs pop up all over Europe because they're not problems that are easily solved or you might solve it but it's only solved for one of the parties and then you've just you know disaffected all the other stakeholders who might have had an interest or might have had a a part to play in solving that problem so they do take a little bit longer to flesh out and solve 
But the reality is, if you're willing to do the grunt work up front and put some time and effort into that, it makes the implementation of the solutions and the actions that might come out of that much easier because you've already grappled with the potential sources of resistance or how is this going to happen? And you've tried to incorporate as many views as possible into how that solution might be worked through and presented. So it's a little bit trickier and it takes a little bit longer, but that's just the nature of wicked problems. They take longer to solve. We often want quick answers. We want, you know, show me how to do this and give me a business case or put a proposal in front of me. And that's not easy to do when you're trying to solve complex problems across a city system. Thanks so much, Debbie. I mean, one of the things that we are really grappling with here in New Zealand is the issue of data. So you're currently in Australia, but you spent many years in New Zealand. And I'm sure you're familiar with the challenge that we've got here, that the data that are available, I mean, that the data quality is terrible and there are huge gaps in data that I think when we look to Europe, where countries are complaining about their data quality, we think, gosh, you know, it's just a world apart. How do you think that New Zealand can start addressing this big challenge? Yeah, that is a tricky one, but there's no doubt that data and information is critical to this uh, circular economy transition. And we've got some incredible tools potentially at our disposal, the Internet of Things, you know, RFID chips. All of those tools can be used uh, to affect much better data capture. I I think one of the challenges is there's no expectation. There's no uh, minimal data set, for instance, around waste. There's no consistency as to what metadata you might want to capture. So I think that's a good place to start is getting some consistency around what metrics might look like. And then there's a need to just implement those widely. And I mean, I think that the circular cities work that's undergoing, how do you measure the circularity of a city? And that's already starting to unpack and flesh out some of those data sets that we might want to capture. And some of that is definitely related to waste, which in New Zealand is historically very poorly captured. But, I mean, I think that's a similar challenge I've seen here in Australia. And often, even if the government does capture the data, it's hamstrung by things like commercial confidence. You know, you can have our data, but you're not to share it with anyone else. And when you want to see data across a system, which could help you identify possible opportunities for innovation like where is the waste being aggregated where are the locations that it's being aggregated where are we best place not just to position our waste processing infrastructure but where are the end markets how do we make sure that we innovate and create a a cluster of potential opportunities for industrial symbiosis and entrepreneurs who want to play in the sandbox if no one is willing to share their data. So it is definitely a challenge. And I think we need a different kind of thinking. We need, you know, that open approach. We need that open access view around this is a system problem we're trying to solve. We need to not be too protective of our data. And I mean, there's ways to clean that data where you can still see it aggregated without knowing too much of the specifics that might get in the way or cause concern about commercial aspects of that data. So which cities are leading the way? Some places have done this extremely well. New York, for example, had a competition where the city of New York itself 
freed up all of the data sets in its system, all of the data that they captured as a city um, council, and they freed that up and they said, put it out to the market. How would you innovate or, or come to us with an, with an idea, with a startup idea with our data? What would you do with our data? And the amount of incredible ideas that came out of that was just astonishing because it freed up a data set. And I think that's the kind of narrative we need to hear about rather than the, you know, protecting IP and keeping closed silos of within one organization. And I think that's what you see more of in the circular economy space, this more of a collaboration and co-optation rather than competition. And when you've got complex supply chains and supply chains that might envelop a city, a region, a nation globally, I mean, many of our supply chains are global now. How do we capture and map those supply chains so we can find where the points of intervention or leverage might be or create enough information flows where people can see an opportunity that they might not have seen if they didn't have access to that data? So I think it's a real conversation we need to have around how we can prize open that thinking around my data is only useful to me or I want to hold on to it for my purposes only and and spread it out there and create far bigger opportunities than we might have imagined otherwise. Debbie, you are the circular economy lead, a newly created role at Lake Macquarie Council in Australia. Could you talk to us about specific circular economy strategies as it relates to cities that you're working on currently? Yes. So I'm pretty new on my role, only here since uh, the middle of January. So still finding my feet and trying not to get lost as I move around the city, although there hasn't been much of that in the last few weeks with us all being on lockdown. So I've got three parts to my role. One of them is policy and framework development for the council. And that is recognizing that this is a new role. It's, I believe, the first council in Australia to embed a circular economy lead dedicated role within the council. So we're pretty much charting a new course on what that might look like to implement a circular economy policy and framework. And that's been done in a very collaborative way. I just did a a presentation to one of the portfolio committees at the council asking for their input and their views of what is important to them that I capture or be mindful of as I develop the policy. So some of it's just the nuts and bolts, you know, the very well-developed framework, for example, that the Ellen MacArthur Foundation have with those five systems I talked about earlier. But it's not just about the product, if you like, or the framework. It's about how do you build relationships that when this policy and framework is adopted in the future, that you can affect the action plans that might fall out of the back of that. So these action plans, we're looking at using the framework identified and the sub-framework, if you like, from the LMAC, which is looking at planning, designing, making, accessing, and then the operations and management of the system and see if that captures enough of what we want to achieve. So right now that's working for us. I mean, the framework is still just at very, very raw uh, draft phase. So we're building that piece and that picture and the work that needs to be done in regards to the food and the organic system that we haven't quite got there yet and the transport. So we're we're looking at basing much of our work on the LMAC framework, but then the piece that needs to be tagged onto that or incorporated into that is the engagement. So engaging the council, the executive leadership at the, you know, the council where I work, 
I'm also a member of the Circular Economy Working Group at the Hunter JO, which is a an organization that enables collaboration across 10 or 11 councils in the Hunter Valley. So we'll look to make sure that whatever we develop or whatever we work on and the lessons we learn from developing this policy and framework can then be shared and spread as quickly and widely as possible with other councils in the region. We also want to engage our communities. And part of that involves uh, education and socialising what the circular economy is. It's still a, a novel concept for many, many people. Some people get it intuitively when you just when you articulate what it is. And then some people, you know, take it a little bit longer to understand the concepts. So there's a we have a role to play in getting the word out there and what it might look like. So part of my role is, you know, presenting and engaging with people in conversations, working with the team across council. We've got an economic development arm of the council called Dantia, and I'll be working closely with them so that we not just change or improve or move ourselves and our council forward in our circular journey, but that we actually make sure that our wider business community understand what uh, fantastic opportunities that a circular economy approach might offer. Particularly in this post-COVID-19 situation we find ourselves. So in New Zealand, there's a lot of discussion on social media about building back better post-COVID. What organising principles we should be using, what questions we should be asking, which sustainability frameworks we should be aligning to, you know, which circular initiatives we should be kicking off, like those proposed by the Circular Economy Accelerator. How can circular thinking help us post-lockdown? One of the lessons I think that we'll have learned globally is the fragility of our complex and long supply chains. And does that present an opportunity for local manufacturing? Are there certain products that should be made inside a country's borders, particularly medical equipment, where not only did you see a halt to the transport logistics of the supply chain, but you also had people holding on to the resources that were manufactured in their country of origin and being reluctant to share them until they knew the scale of the problem they were going to be dealing with and and they wanted to keep those resources for their community. So does it highlight the fact that actually this is a potential opportunity for localising manufacturing for certain components that wouldn't necessarily have been there and considering other things other than the cheapest price Is there other factors that need to come into play when we decide? And that comes into that urban production system. How can we make our production systems more localised? And there's a lot of work going on in that space in regard to makerspaces, citizen labs where you've got access or providing access for 3D printing, also known as additive manufacturing. Is it possible that we could, instead of making a product and shipping it thousands of miles, create a product and then have the product printed locally from locally available biomass materials. So there's a lot of work happening in that bioeconomy space where if we could still maintain that sharing of knowledge across borders, but the manufacturing of products themselves happened in a much tighter loop. We know that tight loops are more efficient from a carbon perspective, transport perspective, they're less brittle when they're shocked, like fire, flooding, droughts. And I guess we're needing as a city to grapple with the idea that we're getting more of these shocks more often. And what does that look like for how we design our cities? 
from not just around urban form, but how they're supplied and how they're connected to the wider footprint that they envelop. So a city the size of, say, Auckland fills a geographic space, but the ecological footprint of that city is far greater. So how do we start to have a conversation around, you know, shortening or tightening the size of that ecological footprint? And that's where the likes of urban bioeconomies and urban development supporting good ecological outcomes comes into play. So so connecting those two things. And the Ellen MacArthur have done a big piece on, on the food system. And I think that is probably something that we're likely to see a lot more attention on going forward is around food and what is what is the best way for us to to manage that better i mean we see in auckland for example some of the most productive land in new zealand it has houses built on it and when you look at one of the fundamental principles of a circular economy which is regenerating natural systems you know that's fundamentally about our water our soil and our air and soil, is, as Juhi and I have spoken about in the past, is a passion of mine. And yeah, I worry about soil and our ability to regenerate soil systems so that they are regenerative and that they are providing high quality, high nutrient food. And right now, our industrial way of farming is denuding the soil of nutrients. And so the food that we eat and the food that we grow is only as good as the soil it's grown in. And How do we make sure that as we develop cities and look at how they're designed and the footprint of the people who live in those cities? And we're talking 75% of people will live in cities by 2050, I believe. So we have a major, major challenge to ensure that as our cities grow, and not just your average city, but these mega, mega cities in the likes of China and India, how do we grapple with the ecological footprint of those cities and the carbon footprint they create, not just on the way the city is run from transport and an energy system, but the food system and how the food is grown to feed that city. So those are all interconnected pieces, like I talked a little bit about earlier. And changing one element of the system has to involve a conversation and in a connection with the other elements of the city, or we're just moving the problem from one area to the other. So we're pushing this problem. We've cleaned up our energy system, but actually it hasn't affected or improved or it's exacerbated how the food system works. So, and transport, food miles, massive, um, massive conversation happening around food miles. And I think carbon and supply chains will be the next big disruptor, if you like. And that's in response to consumers. They want to know, where did this food come from? If I want to buy local, how can I, if I don't know when I go to the grocery store, what is local? So I think you're seeing an appetite from consumers wanting to know where their food comes from. And that's related to climate change concerns, but also making sure that the people who grew this food, you know, aren't victims of slavery, for example. So I think there's an opportunity to make sure that as we plan for cities, we plan for the food system, the water and how the water flows through that system. So that urban metabolism concept is becoming better understood and starting to be better articulated into city design, which is really great to see. Some fascinating insights there, uh, Debbie. That was um, truly some great thoughts. I took some key takeaways from 
conversation with you on how our cities and our journey to building circular, resilient, regenerative cities could start with the five pillars that you mentioned, the built environment, transport systems, our energy systems, the urban bioeconomy, which also includes food and production or local manufacturing. And those are some really, really great starting points for a city council beginning to develop a regenerative circular strategy. You also talked about the importance of data and how innovation and initiatives at the local level are sort of starting at the edges or the fringes of city departments. Thank you so much, Debbie, for your time, for sharing your insights with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. To learn more about the work Debbie is doing and continue the discussion, visit us at projectmoonshot.city. I'm Preeti Ambani. I'm Juhi Sharif. This is Moonshot City.